listening. You're listening. You're listening to the Fantasy Focus Baseball Podcast. Best I got. What is that? Oh, is that like, is that the song? What is that song? I don't, all right, this is the Fantasy Focus Baseball Podcast. I'm going to give myself 10 seconds to figure it out. Uh, Thursday, May 7th. How bad it was, yes. What? <laughs> That's what how bad it? it was. That's how much I missed the mark. Oh, I, What are you supposed to be doing there? You make me feel like a natural woman. I do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's the name of it, at least. Eric tends to have that effect on people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thursday, May 7, 2020. It's going to be one of those shows. That's Tristan H. Cockcroft. He sings, he dances, he wins fantasy leagues. Kyle Soppy researches and produces our show. I'm Eric, someone had a host, and you heard June Lee there, the awesome, excellent ESPN staff writer who is joining us again today as it's another Thursday, so it's another movie day. June, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, you said before the show this is the highlight of your day, and I couldn't tell if you were being facetious or not, so please explain. I'd like to know. My, I mean, my day right now consists of waking up, uh, you know, drinking a glass of water and then sitting in front of my computer for six to seven hours. Uh, so talking to other people right now, just generally, even if it's over video chat and, you know, broadcast on a podcast uh, is a lot more fun than, uh, you know, getting getting my eyes strained from just staring at a word doc. In a- so it's not exactly like... Because it's us that you're happy, and it's the highlight of your day. It's no, this like- is be- this is better than the existential dread of having to write, basically. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we're kind of at the bottom there, but like a little bit up. But like the highlight of your day could be when the mailman or the milkman comes to the door. Of course, like if I get a package from Amazon, like that is the highlight of my day. That'd be better than this show. Uh, it depends on what the package is. Okay. Well, we're delivering talk about the natural today. Last week it was Major League, an awesome movie. The Natural's an awesome movie too, Robert Redford. It's a classic. We're going to discuss that. But as always, we start off with a little bit of trivia, Tristan. I see oh, you've got something. Yeah. Of course. Sing I it do. for us. Sing let's, a song that we might know. Let's get trivia. Trivia. I've got some trivia. Let's get to the trivia. All right. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to make this a little bit themed towards the natural here. So I would like and and this is just a general baseball knowledge. So June, Eric, Kyle, you should all be able to get some guesses in here. We'll get this at the end of the movie talk. But can you name the only two players to win the rookie of the year award at the age of 30 or older? So we want the older rookies of the year. There were two of them. Can you name the two who won it after the age of 30? I think I know one of them. I don't know if he won. Was he around for the? I'm thinking of a guy who, but he was old. I but I don't know if he won the rookie. I don't know if they had the rookie. All right, we're gonna we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right, so let's talk about the Natural, which is a terrific movie, 1984. And um, June, let's start with you because you're the movie expert here. Did you obviously you liked it? It was on your list of likes. Um, why do you like the Natural so much? So the natural is like everything I want out of a sports movie in that it's self-aware that it's like an overly uh, idealistic, you know, even corny um, thing. Because, you know, the thing with most sports movies is, 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 that, is that they are corny, but they don't acknowledge the fact that they're corny. I feel like the natural really leans into the fact that it has this like fable like quality to it um, from the music, the Randy Newman score. Uh, and then it's just the thing the thing that was funny when I was rewatching it last night with when uh as as now as as an adult for the first time uh was seeing how old Robert Redford is 
Because uh, as a kid, you watch the movie and you can't really differentiate how old someone should be given a role because you're a child. Uh, and then I watched the movie last night. I was like, this guy looks like at least 10 years too old to be a baseball player at this point. Um, but regardless, like the, the whole fable quality of the story, I think is, is the fact that it, it leans into that, the, the way the, the music kind of emphasizes that, I think, in the right moments. Uh, and then you have like the star power. You have Redford, you have Robert Duvall, you have Glenn Close, you have Kim Basinger. Uh, like there, there, I think there's a lot of reasons why this, this movie ends up, you know, holding the test of time. You know, when I was, when, when, uh, when Roy Hobbs hits the homer at the end, you know, I feel like you know, people have compared that to the Kirk Gibson mo- moment uh, at, at many points in history, right? Or just when people talk about it now. Uh, and I think the natural, that ending represents what we internally feel like that ending should be like, right? Uh, and we, we like project that kind of image onto Kirk Gibson's homer, you know? And I feel like that's so much of sports is that it leads into... Uh, just, you know, the sentimental stuff. And uh, I think this, this movie hits the notes in all the right ways that I think, uh, most sports movies have a hard time doing. Tristan, what's your take? So it's corny, but cool. What do you agree with that? I, I, I suppose it is corny. I didn't feel it was when I first watched it. I remember seeing it a little bit closer to when it was actually released. And I, I feel like it's advantage besides the score. The Randy Newman score makes the movie. I mean, that's what carries it. Even today, you think of it that way. I still remember when I was getting into the baseball video games. I think it was MLB 2K used the score from this movie for their game, which descri- describes how recognizable it is. I mean, you'd instantly know it. Um, But I think for me, the fact that it came out in the 80s gave it the advantage of production values from a movie standpoint, while also giving you a historic look at the game itself. A lot of the the disadvantages of the older movies is that they came out either in the black and white era or they didn't quite have the cinematography they did for this one. But this is they got two stadiums from Buffalo that looked old time. They were able to kind of fake Wrigley Field a little bit. So you really felt like you were there in the old style baseball. That was the part that I really loved. It felt like it was real to me, as absurd as the plot might be. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, we've got three categories here. Artistically, was it actually a good movie? I think we all agree that it is. Technically, as a baseball movie, was it believable? Well, some of it, I think. Some of it's believable. I mean, but the things that were not believable were kind of cool. You know, like I I thought like hitting the like the cover off the baseball. That's cool. Uh, Hitting uh, the lights in the right field stands. That's that's cool. The lightning, the bat being named and the way he made the bat. Um, I probably have a little bit of a different take here. By the way, Redford was 48 years old uh, when he made the movie. So, yeah, he's a, he was a little – he was Satchel Pages-ish, uh, I would say. But personally for me, okay, and this is going to sound odd, but as a Phillies fan, I actually knew when the movie came out, I knew what part of it was based on. I had not read the book. I, I have since read Bernard Malamud's book. He's a fantastic writer, but his book is a downer. Um, the movie is – this is one case where the movie is, uh, I think, better than the book. Um, the other thing is the shooting that happens. Um, I know what that was. When I was a kid, I had read about it because it was a Philly, Eddie Wakus, who um, – what was it? A deranged – so he was on the Cubs. He was a first baseman for the Cubs, and there was a deranged a lady fan who loved him, and then he got traded to the Phillies in 1949, and she stalked him, went to a hotel, went to his room, and shot him. He lived. Uh, and then he came back. He was the leadoff hitter for the 1950 Phillies Whiz Kids, scored 102 runs. So I kind of knew that backstory. This movie takes like all these different like historical things in baseball, puts them together, which I loved as a kid. 
Um, maybe not as much. I think I loved it more, this movie more when I was younger than I do now that there's other baseball movies that are maybe more realistic. Um, but it is a cool movie. Corny, but cool, I think is a good way to put it. And I think the third category here is, does the movie stand the test of time? Um, yeah, I think it, it does stand the test of time. It, it's, it's not a movie you change your mind about all that much, is it? No, I, I would say that my opinion on this movie has stayed pretty consistent. Like, you, I, I feel like you understand the story. For me, I watched this when I was a really young kid growing up. This was like one of the first baseball movies that I watched. And so, you know, you, you get the, you get the sense of the story. You really feel the story as a little kid. And then you kind of understand what the plot, the plot and what's happening better as you get older. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that really helps this movie stand the test of time is that Robert Redford is obviously a movie icon. And the main romantic lead in the movie is Glenn Close, who has, you know, remained, uh, an iconic actress to this day. Um, you know, and then obviously the Randy Newman, like we keep going back to the score, the Randy Newman score. I mean, Randy Newman is a total legend, obviously, in the movie industry and just uh, setting the tone for so many great movies. Uh, and and I think that this is, for me, one of the most memorable scores in terms of just being t- being able to take a story and kind of elevate it to the next level and really take something uh, and make it more special. I, I think I'd, I'd like to go back to Eric's point about the fact that this changes the actual novel. I saw this movie before I read the book as well, and I'll be honest with you, too. I still have not been able to read the book knowing what happened at the end of that one. Spoiler alert, it is a true downer, as Eric described. And I know that uh, many critics of this movie bring that up as a real problem with it. And the end is what they changed, truly absurd, especially if you put it in the context of the movies that came out after that. The great winning above all odds ending of that movie. For some reason, this one time, it didn't bother me. I agree with Eric. I, I like the fact that they ended it this way. And knowing what happened in the book, I have an issue with that. But what do you two think? I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even thinking of the book right now because to me, it just it doesn't come close. But one of the interesting things to me about the movie is that the lack of like quotes that we talk about forever. Like in Major League, we talked about last week, there's so many interesting characters with interesting, memorable quotes. I can't think of a memorable quote that I use from the natural. I mean, there's interesting characters, but like, pick me out a winner, Bobby, on the on the bat after he breaks his bat. Like, I'm trying to think of something that, June, do you remember any quotes from the natural where you think, yeah, I use that in my regular life. I can't think of any. So admittedly, I've never been someone who retains like movie quotes particularly well. I, th- I feel like the natural is one of those movies that's more of like a vibes movie than it is like a, uh, you know, super well-written, like super memorable, sharp uh, well-written script, or I, I feel like the 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 natural is like a big, warm hug, in terms of just being a baseball fan. You know, like I, I really like the point that Tristan brought up that um, you know, this is the one baseball movie where I feel like it's okay to have that overly sentimental, extremely corny ending because it earns it to a certain degree in its storytelling. Um, but I don't want that ending for most any other sports movie because we got it with the natural, you know, like I think that's why, you know, I feel like the natural is kind of the beginning of it's, it's kind of hard to look at films individually because everything kind of comes within its, its own context, right? Like one, one, one film kind of builds after the other. And you have to have a movie like The Natural in the 1980s where that establishes a baseline. Hey, you can make a good baseball movie before you can have a movie like Sugar, you know, that came out in the 2000s. I think the only quote that comes to mind for me, as Eric said, there aren't many, was the Pete and then repeat on the train early in the movie. 
I, I, for some reason, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Not a lot of the baseball stuff doesn't strike me, but I don't think the movie was made uh, to be quotable. Whereas a lot of the stuff that came out in the later eighties and the nineties was made pretty much to be quotable or to, to clip the little scenes. I think that was just an era in movie making after that, 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 that became kind of hip. It's also, it's also hard to compare Major League and The Natural in that regard because the natural, the Major League is a comedy movie and like it's natural for merch to come off of comedy movies, right? Like we've seen Anchorman merch for 20, 15 years after that movie came out. Like that's just the, the, the nature of comedy movie culture, right? The Natural is a different type of movie. It was nominated for four Academy Awards when it came out. It's just, it's like they're both, they're both, they both have their own place in like the baseball movie universe, right? But they're, they're also trying to do very, very different things. And it almost the movie had to have actors we know, you know, this movie, The Natural, like Redford, who has been fantastic for I don't know, at least 50 years and Duvall and Close and Basinger, Wilford Brimley, the manager. What a terrific role he has there as well. It's almost like it, it had to be um, characters who have earned their praises through the years and won awards. You couldn't have had it. Not that, you know, Charlie Sheen is, is not that. Well, he's not. It, it's, you're right. It's different. Like in order for this movie to be respected, it had to be terrific actors and actresses that have been have, are famous as opposed to no name people. Yeah, I think this movie is extremely hard to pull off successfully because you have a really corny ending. And unless you pull all of those strings right in the just the movie making process, having the right actors there, having a good script there, you know, ha- you know, editing the, the story together, having all of those things actually work together to pull it off. You know, if you have a bunch of no name actors in this movie, it's a totally different movie because you know, Redford brings the gravitas into Roy Hobbs. You have the history of Robert Redford. Like those, those things, two things kind of come hand in hand. And this is, you know, I, I keep kind of, go- when I was kind of reading up the movie last night, one of the main comparisons that come up with the natural is King Arthur. And this is very much, you know, a fable like tale. And I feel like Rob, uh, Robert Redford, just given his track record in the movie industry, just being his status as a legend and his legend has grown since then, uh, has, has the gravitas to pull off a King Arthur type character that has a, you know, an overly sentimental but wonderful corny ending. I like that angle that you two bring up, the, the fact that uh, the, the actors do make it. Um, I bring up a lot of times with other movies, even non-sports ones, that I need to have somebody I can sympathize with in the movie. If everybody is a, a despicable character, I very often can't behind the movie. And in this case, especially Robert Redford in that lead role, you definitely root for him. And when we think about the fact that they changed that ending, you know, he had a, he has a really tough time throughout the script of this. I mean, all the odds are stacked against him. So to twist it the other direction and have him enjoy success at the ending, it seems kind of right. You've been rooting for the guy the entirety of the time. Yeah, it's a pretty like if you're rooting for Roy Hobbs, his character arc is pretty depressing for like a good portion yeah. of the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I couldn't understand why when I was playing Little League that I couldn't hit a base. I was a left-handed hitter. Why couldn't I hit a baseball out over the lights? I didn't never understood why that was not happening. I was trying so hard and, you know, I, I couldn't grow my own bat the way he did. Like, I, I was I was unhappy with that. But the movie does, <laughs> is terrific. And, Admit it, you guys made your own bats when you were in Little League, right? Come on. All the time. Sure. Yeah. You know, wrapped <laughs> it up. I said <laughs> the, the lightning. I, I do recall this, though, uh, as a longtime reader of ESPN, of course, our company man, that I think it was Bill Simmons. Maybe it was page two or something or maybe it was before that. Trying to figure out what numbers he put up. Obviously, you can't go to baseball reference and look up Roy Hobbs's numbers. I'm a baseball reference all the time now. And I think he had it like he played like 110 games that year, hit like 40 home runs, 
a lot of walks, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of home runs. He was a little bit of like Tristan, like a, a three true outcomes player, Corey Hobbs. Yep. Um, you know, in the 40s or 50s, I guess he would have been a much different player than he would have been today. There's no speed there. You can see that even on his like muddy triple. But, right? Yeah. Muddy triple. <laughs> oh, I definitely. And not only that, I like that you bring up the three true outcomes because it falls into that whole streaky nature. Remember, he has that terrible slump in the middle of the movie. So, yeah, it is about right. And there's blood on his uniform, right? Isn't there, like he's like the Kirk I Schilling. hated that part. I truly hated that part. That's the one thing that didn't make sense. From yeah, that, that, that was a little unnatural for me. Like, pun unintended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it, one of the, when you bring up the uniforms, it's it's kind of funny to see how heavy the uniforms look too. Like they look like they must have been sweating in those things. Yeah, they were very heavy uniforms, and they were in Buffalo. I assume not in December either, because I didn't see any snow. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the blood. Like, why is he out there playing? There's blood going through his his you know trunk through through the uniform. The catcher couldn't say time out. Like. This is something's wrong. Is there no trainer to come out? Apparently yeah. not. The catcher, Apparently not kinda, the Knights. catcher just kind of looks and says, eh, oh, well, yeah, we see that every day. <laughs> yeah, normal. Ty Cobb spiked him. Um, okay. Well, I don't know what else we can do about uh, talking about this movie. Any final thoughts here, gentlemen? Obviously, there's times where I want to see a comedy like Major League. There's times where I want to see something realistic. And there's times where I just want to feel good, I guess, at the end, like the natural. It doesn't have to be realistic or funny. So there's very different movies for me when I see it on TV. Sometimes I want to see it. Sometimes I don't. This is a really good, uh, like, turn on cable and just leave it on in the background type of movie. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen it more often than I, at least I believe, than any other baseball movie ever made. And it's for that reason. I almost always have something on in the background. And if there's no active game, usually the natural is on somewhere. <laughs> somewhere yeah. is right. No, that's that's good stuff there. All right. Uh, that's all for that, for that. And I hope. June will be back next Thursday to talk about another baseball movie. I guess we don't know what it is yet. Who makes these decisions? And and can, June, can you give us an overall? Because I mean, people were asking me why now is this part of like a bigger thing, and I don't really have the answer to that. So you write for the baseball group. Is there like a list of the best baseball movies, and is this going to continue for a long time? Did you write about this movie themed like summer? What's is there like a bigger picture here for the movies? I think there was an article that came out a couple of weeks ago about ranking some of the most underrated baseball movies, and that included documentaries, you know, think baseball content that people hadn't seen. So I think it kind of stemmed off of that. But like, from my understanding, I got a Slack message one day and that was said, "Hey, do you want to do a baseball <laughs> movie podcast thing?" And I was like, "I love baseball and I love movies, so that sounds good to me." Oh, by the way, so. Um, I said on Monday's show, and I'm sure you were listening, June, that um, documentaries are my thing, whether it's baseball or anything else. And so people told me to watch this documentary on Netflix called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Um, And I didn't know any of this stuff. Kurt Russell, the famous actor, his father was also a famous actor. And Bing Russell, like, he created an independent league team in Portland, Oregon, and there's some great characters there, and it's a really cool documentary, which I enjoyed, and I would recommend it to everybody out there. I, I found it on Netflix, but thanks to the people on Twitter who pointed it out to me, and I'm trying to think what my next documentary is. It wasn't a baseball one. It was about the Russian 
hockey players. I'll watch that. I'll watch almost any well-done documentary. And, of course, the Michael Jordan thing every Sunday night is fantastic. Usually I DVR these things and watch them a couple days. I'm watching this live, people. The Michael Jordan documentary, I don't even know what it's called. Oh, Last Dance. That thing on Sunday night on ESPN, and I'm not saying it because it's on ESPN. It could be on any channel. It is fantastic. Have you been watching that, June? Yeah, it's been awesome. It's it's been. Uh, I think you know something that I thought about a lot just with the Jordan Lebron debate constantly is that a lot of people my age don't know or haven't seen kind of the whole chronology of Jordan laid out to I think actually have that discussion in like a fruitful way. And so I'm very curious to see how this documentary shapes the perception and shapes the discussion around Jordan versus LeBron, because I think uh, at least a lot more people are going to be significantly more informed on Jordan's legacy now uh, than they have been in the past. I think that's fair. Um, all right. So let's move on from the movies now and answer the trivia question. Tristan, remind everybody it was only like 10 minutes ago, but <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was the trivia question? All right. Yeah. It's a little natural themed. We're going with the older rookies. Uh, can you name the only two players to win the rookie of the year award at the age of 30 or older? I do have, I suppose, a helpful hint if you need it, but you could guess first if you like. I have no idea. I mean, I'm trying to think. Like, I, I Satchel Paige never won the Rookie so, of the Year. Here, here's your hand. I'm going to give you a little direction. Joe Charbonneau wasn't 30. Bob one, Hamill. I, one was a hitter. One was a pitcher, and they won the awards exactly 50 years apart. Nichiro <laughs> was too young, right? Correct. He, he wasn't 30. Not a bad idea, though. Yeah, I was starting to think of like but you're on like, the right no, track. Well, I mean, a year apart. Oh, I know, I know one. Okay, I know Ichiro's teammate, Kaz Sasaki. Kaz Sasaki did win it uh, in 2000. Correct. He won it at the age of 30. He was 33, I believe that was. All right, so we got it. So Sasaki won it. You said in 2000. So it's got to be 1950. I'm, I'm, I have no guesses here. I have yeah. no guesses here. This is this is the tough one. You'd have to know. Uh, this is a Negro League player who had come over to MLB and then won the award after that. So, and there were a lot of of players who fit the qualifications rookie of the year. This this player actually won it. Larry it wasn't Larry Doby. Um, no, I, I, I it wasn't Jackie Robinson. I don't know. Ready for the Wait, answer? It's yeah. Sam Jethro in 1950. Sam. Oh yeah, the the leader of Tristan's fantasy team that year. No, I I don't. Uh, <laughs> come on. Yeah, he was thirty three at the time. Sasaki was thirty two. Sasaki's the oh, one I thought you would get. Last. Right it it, it makes sense for- that it's a Japanese player that uh that just 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 from like a from a math standpoint. But yeah, I didn't I didn't realize it was Sasaki. Yeah, yeah, that that one I should have gotten. Sam Jethro. I'm looking at it now. It was a good season, um, but. <laughs> What's interesting about the Japanese players who come over is that a lot of times the voters go out of their way not to elect the player. And uh, I believe it was, it was uh, Angel Baroa, I think, who won it over uh, Hideki Matsui in 03. Yeah, but I, honestly, as I'm getting older and I don't, I'm in the organization, okay, but that votes, BBWA, but like everybody's got an agenda. Like you're seeing some ridiculous voting. I think it's better now because it's younger people that are voting. Um, but June, are you in the BBWA? I am in the BBWA. Yeah. Although when I've never voted, to- I've, I've never voted for anything. I, I don't think, I think you have to be in for a while, like, uh, 10 years, 10 years I, is for the hall of fame. I just finished up my second season or right, this, I'm in this, your, this would have been my third season. 
Well, there's going to be a season, apparently, because there's breaking news like, last night. But yeah. I think back in the day, when I look at some of the award winners, I say this every show, they're ridiculous. People didn't like this guy, or he was mean to the media, and I don't like him. And, and then Japanese players, you know, they don't deserve it. It's just, um, it's a shame. But I think now the voting is a lot better. And yes, I can't wait to actually vote. I think you have a better chance than I do to vote soon. Um, but um, hopefully we both get to. And then someday Hall of Fame, A-Rod. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be definitely a fascinating uh, discussion to have. He'll be on the ballot for both of us. Anyway, June Lee, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Check out his fine work at ESPN's MLB coverage. And hopefully we'll have you on next Thursday and every Thursday to talk about awesome movies and baseball. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, June. Thanks, June. You've got hash browns on tap for today. You can reach me at Kyle Safi ESPN on Twitter if you want to get your questions in and on the show. First up is Matt Alex Verdugo said that he was 100% healthy the other day. What role and value do you think that holds, assuming he's at full health? Listen, this is a good player, a good young player, and the only concern I really have about him is health. It was a back injury. We knew about this back in the spring before any of this stuff happened, but he hit for the Dodgers last year. That's an 817 OPS, a little bit of pop, a little bit of speed. I think if you gave him a full season in 2021 – he might even be their leadoff hitter. He might be better than Andrew Benintendi at getting on base, at hitting for power. Um, he's their right fielder right now. I, I don't want to – like, Benintendi was a little disappointing last season. So, if Verdugo is healthy, he might even be their leadoff hitter this season, Tristan, in an 80-game season. I think if, if you gave him 150 games and 600 PAs, 20, 20 to 25 home runs, 10 to 12 steals, he might bat 300 too. This is a good player. Can I just say what he said? Uh, Benintendi was the very first thing that came to mind as contrasting the two within the same outfield. And if you look at their numbers, last season's returns at least do support this. A 266 average here for Andrew Benintendi last year, two, uh, 343, 240, uh, excuse me, 431. Verdugo's were 294, 342, and 740, uh, 745, 475. He was clearly a better player of these two, and they hit almost the same number of homers. And Verdugo played less. Uh, I think he plays practically every day if he is truly healthy for the Red Sox. And that's going to give him a good chance at giving you a strong return on your investment. He's going to go a lot later than Benintendi in drafts. Maybe he could elevate himself to one of the top two spots in the lineup, in fact, if things go well. Yeah, but, you know, like we don't rank Verdugo well or at all because of the injury and you've got um number two thirty four. Wait, wait, no, you don't. Even, that's not even in this. That's the dynasty. I, I, where do you have? Him? I can't follow this along. Are you him as the number sixty two outfielder? All right, so that's draftable, obviously, but not somebody you have to draft. And we've got Ben Intendi ranked considerably better. And I wonder at what, what point are we going to get tired of waiting? Ben Intendi's not old. He's not even twenty seven yet, right? But at what point are we going to say? Maybe Benintendi is not all that. So, so this question is not about Benintendi, but we basically think Verdugo is going to be maybe better than Benintendi and might lead off for this team. That's significant. Why are we ranking Benintendi in our top 100 and Verdugo 250? Yeah, and I think a lot of it's going back to just what the scouts said about Benintendi at the time that he debuted. Uh, he'll turn 26 in exactly 60 days from right now. Verdugo is only 23 years old, and he's going to turn 24 in eight days from right now. So we're talking a, a clear two-year difference between these two players. You're right. We probably should narrow it a little bit. And if 
when we get the plan as to what the season is, when spring training is starting, if on day one of that new spring training, Verdugo is ready to go 100%, we see him in active games, I do think we're going to have to move him up substantially on the draft boards because our ranking did take in the prospect that he would miss a good chunk of time at the beginning of the year. It doesn't look like that's the case anymore. The um, the lineup here on Fangraphs, roster resource, has been attending Devers, Bogart's top three, Verdugo batting seventh after Chavez, the second baseman. So I think lineup is going to be a big key in deciding which of these players is more valuable. But again, the better value is not Benintendi. All right, next. Decep chimes in. He wants to know if Andrelton Simmons was the right answer to the question we talked about on Monday with a comparison for Nick Madrigal's immediate value. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I mean, we talked about Nick Madrigal, and if you haven't listened to Monday's show, I'm sure it's somewhere where you can find it. Go ahead and listen to it. Um, but Simmons has hit double-digit homers before, and he has stolen double-digit bases at least three or four, four seasons in a row. Big contact guy, doesn't strike out a lot. That's not who I was thinking of. Because when you think Andrelton Simmons, you think this is a gold-glove fielder, and I don't think Madrigal's that. Um, and even offensively, I, I just – yeah, I mean, I don't even know if Madrigal's hitting 10 home runs. That's the other thing. And, and when I do comps, it's it's hard for me to ignore some of this other stuff. I, I just – to me, Madrigal's a real little guy. He's like my size, 5'7", 150-something. And I just don't see any power here at all. I, I think the best chance of relevance is if he leads off for the White Sox. He has to win the job, which he should do. Um, no, I, I, I'm trying to – it's almost like a – a batting average Gerard Dyson, or it's got to be somebody like Decor. I can't. Sounds like peak Eric Carabell is his comparison. That's what we're looking for here. Well, it's actually Eric's point about the size is remarkable. He is a full seven inches shorter and 30 pounds lighter than Andrelton Simmons. I mean, very tiny player. And you're right. Simmons, the first thing I think of is platinum glove candidate. I mean, best defender in the league, a candidate for that honor each and every year. I will say that the interesting part of this comp is that Simmons developed power after he got to the major leagues. That was not something that was expected to the level he's done it. So maybe Madrigal could do that, but also Simmons does have the size advantage there. And I, I don't know that the contact is even quite comparable here. I think that, that Madrigal is going more for line drives and elite contact even beyond the level of Simmons. But it's a cool one. The, the thing I hate to do is assume that Madrigal never develops power. He's like 23 years old. He he could develop some semblance of it. So I, I hate to just say he'll never develop even like 10 home run power. He could do that with this baseball. Anybody can do it. I, I want to say, see, like we we mentioned Pedroia, second base, same kind of build. It's just Pedroia ended up hitting for power. I didn't think Pedroia would hit for power when he first came up. Did you? I, I think that's one difference there. So I just don't want to assume that he'll never develop any power. Um, I just can't find a reasonable comp. So. Yeah. So interestingly enough, uh, when we mentioned the size, the first thing I think about is could he develop power? So I entered in quickly uh, players of 67 inches or shorter, which would be five, seven or shorter uh, and home runs. Only one player has ever hit 40 home runs at that size. At was- five, seven. At 5'7 or shorter, only one player's ever hit more than 40 homers. And in fact, he has the top two spots. It's Hack Wilson with the 56 and then the 39. After that, I mean, Altuve's next with 31. It's not common for a guy of this size to hit even 25 homers. It's only been I have the comp. I got it. I got the comp. 
Who is it? I got the comp, and Dave Schoenfield, our friend, and he has been an MLB writer, but would be very pleased here because mm-hmm. he had this guy in our sim. We played in a diamond mine sim in the seventies, and uh, not in not we weren't in the seventies. The sim was in the seventies. Freddie Patek, the the old Royal shortstop, uh-huh. who was like five foot five, one fifty. Um, he was a contact guy. He stole a lot of bases. He had no power. He had forty home runs in like fifteen seasons. Madrigal is a better batting average option than Patek. Patek only hit like two fifty, but that's the, that's the comp for somebody who loves nineteen seven late nineteen seventies baseball and eighties, which I do. That's it's Freddie Patek. I think Schoenfield would agree. All right, Patek or Patek, but I like the comp. I I agree with you. I'd bump up the rates a little bit, but it could be a very similar type. Right. This is uh, like back in the seventies, like little shortstops and second basemen had no power. They just tried to make contact. They bunted a lot. Now it's different. Madrigal could win a batting title. I don't want to say that he's exactly like Patek, but he's going to hit like five home runs a year and steal 20 bases. That's that's good. That's a, that's a good player. Still be a good player. All right, well, only players that size who have ever hit this, uh, even 20 homers, Hack Wilson, Jose Altuve, Jimmy Rollins, Yogi Berra, Joe Morgan. And I don't yeah, and, they're, and they all had power. Yeah. That's a pretty they're good the, list. They're the only ones at that size who did it. So it can be done, but Look, if he hits 12 home runs, I'm happy. Sure. All right. Next question comes from John. He wants to know which post-hype prospect you're most excited about moving forward between Brett Honeywell, Alex Reyes, and Luis Urias. Well, not to be negative, but none. Um, I think it's Honeywell because I still think there's something there. He's coming back from Tommy John, which is a normal surgery, right? Um, So I I think he's the only one I kind of haven't written off. I know that's unfair. The other guys are young, but – Alex Reyes, the Cardinal pitcher, one, I don't think he can stay healthy. And I, I don't know what his role is going to be. And I tend to avoid – we always say, Tristan, draft skills, not role. But in the case of Alex Reyes, I, don't, can't, I can't see him being a durable starting pitcher or a closer. So I like his skills, but there's been too many injuries. And with Luis Urias, who just got traded, right, to the Brewers, I, I, I think he's going to play second – I guess he can't play second base. He's going to have to play shortstop. He's going to be, have to beat out that guy who can't hit, um, whose name escapes me. Orlando Arcia. Arcia, who's bad. Orias did not hit at all. He's been up a couple times, and he reminds me of Francisco Mejia. I mean, you got to keep giving them chances. The Padres did the hit. They finally gave up on Orias. I don't think Orias has any power, and I don't think he has any speed. I guess he has some power. He hit for power in AAA last year, but – I can't see Orias being somebody I'm going to – I can't see drafting any of these guys in an ESPN standard. Um, in a dynasty, I guess you give Orias a shot because he'll be second short eligible, and I guess he could be a – maybe he could be a 15-home run guy. I don't know. Do you like Orias more than I do? I do, yes. I like the fit a lot in Milwaukee. I am not ready to cast him aside based on the fact that I believe he's not even 23 yet. He is 22 and 11. Yeah, so he's going to turn – 23 years old at the beginning of June, June 3rd. Um, Good ballpark. Very good ballpark for him in terms of bumping up the power potential. So I think there could be a little bit of pop. Last question here comes from Mike Triplett, good buddy that covers the Saints. Yes. He chimed in. He was hearing about the major league conversation on Monday, or I guess it was last Thursday. He wants to know who's the all-star from that team. He's guessing Serrano, but he needs the opinion of the professionals. Ooh. That's a good question. It can't be Serrano, right? Because he he clearly couldn't hit off-speed stuff. So why would pitchers 
throw him off speed stuff. And I guess, I mean, Jake Taylor, the catcher, could have had some, like, if catcher is weak that year, it just he didn't look like he had any power. But he could be like that catcher who hits like 10 home runs and bats 300, I suppose. Like the Sandy Alomar year where he got, made the All-Star starting lineup batting 199. Did he really? Yes, he did. I remember that vividly. I was shocked when I saw that line. Because remember, back then they would show you batting average home runs and RBI in the middle of the game. 199 batting average. I mean, the obvious All-Star in the movie is is the Duke, is the closer for the other team, the Yankees. And Haywood, the first baseman. Pete Bush, yeah, yeah. He's one of the worst Cy Young winners ever. Um, but on the actual Cleveland club. See, one thing to keep in mind, though, it was 1989. In 1989, everybody was chasing home runs and RBI. So who was the Indians leader in home runs and RBI? I, I still think it might have been Roger Dorn at third base. I mean, we know because uh, Bob Uecker said. Like he had like twenty four homers and like ninety RBI and batted like two eighty. That's a solid season. Now maybe for nineteen eighty nine it's not, but that's a that's a decent season. I, I think it would have been, tough. but nobody liked him, so they wouldn't have made him an all star. And the other is that he wouldn't have gotten in on the fan vote, so it would have to be selected by somebody else. So it's clearly going to be the statistical leader for the team. And I, but he, I don't. He, but he was he made millions. Of, he was a very highly paid player, so you can assume that he used to be an all star. I just feel like Serrano might have had 20 home runs, but might have hit like 240 because he had no plate discipline. He was striking out on everything off speed. So Eddie Harris wasn't striking anybody out. Um, Did Rob Deere, Rob Deere make the all-star team? Because it feels very similar. I mean, probably Willie Mays Hayes because he was stealing all the bases. Yeah, it probably was Willie Mays Hayes. I mean, Vince Coleman was probably an all-star, right? Rob Deere never made an all-star team. Let me see if Vince Coleman did. Because that would be the conference. Oh, sure. I'm sure that Coleman did. He made two. He was a rookie of the year. He got MVP votes somehow in 87. And he was an all-star in 88 and 89. Stole a lot of bases. How How, how is he an all-star? He batted 260 and 254 in his all-star seasons. Combined five home runs. Obviously, he was not a home run guy. To 28 in his 13-year career. And he was not a great player. Batting average, homers, stolen bases. That's all that mattered back in the 80s. There were some weird things. In the Vince Coleman's days. career wins above replacement is 12.5 in 13 seasons. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So I'm going to say Willie Mays Hayes. By the way, our friend Schoenfield is doing some amazing work um, on ESPN's MLB coverage. He did the six great under like seasons from the 1980s that could never happen again. You've got to read that. And a couple of them, I would have guessed. I would have guessed like five of them that he, he had in the article. The Mike Mark Eichhorn, um, there's some Eric Davis. He also has um, one wild record from each franchise that you might not know about. Which yeah, I like that one. That was a good column. Yeah. And today, uh, 90 players from the 90s with amazing numbers. Like basically the most ridiculous 90s seasons. 90 of them. This is crazy. And wait till you get the number one. It's just it's it's such it's awesome. I, I agree with him totally. Um, what was the question? Oh, was so the I, my guess the All Star. By the way, I'll give you the other All Star comp that came to mind. Gorman Thomas makes the All Star game in 1981, and then that year he batted 259 with 21 home runs. 
I, look, when again, when I look at some of the players that have played in an All-Star game, who was that Chicago Cubs first baseman who never did a thing, who like, was a journeyman minor leaguer, and then he, he has a good April and May one year, and he makes the All-Star team. You know oh, what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Um, gosh, I was 2001 to 5 era. Oh, gosh, what was his name? And he, was, he did nothing. He just had a good April that year, and, and all of a sudden they put him in the All-Star game. I'm gonna have to uh, go. I'm, yeah, I'm curious I to. Need, I need to look this up. So you take the even years in the '80s. I'll take the odd ones. I gotta know. <laughs> now it couldn't have been eight. It wasn't '80s. It was 2000s. No, was it? Yeah, it was more recent. I think it was the guy after Derek Lee at first base. Gosh, who was it? I know exactly who you're. You know yeah. who I'm talking about. Like, how did that guy make an All Star team? He might have been a nice fellow, but I can't. Yeah, that's that's wow. I'm looking through their all stars. There's an all star tab, and I can't there find it there. Oh, there it is. Brian Who yeah, is it? Brian Lahare. Brian Lahare, of course. What year was that? Oh, oh, two. It was twelve. It was 2012. And he had he had 259 with 16 home runs that season, and he made the all star. Obviously, he was doing something in the first half of the season, but. That's what I'm saying. Like you say, okay, Gorman Thomas made an All Star team. Awesome for him. I I need context. I need to know what that really means. Like, was he really having a good season? Lahare hit 390 with five home runs in April, and he made the All Star team. I'll give you he the did pitch nothing comp. after that. I'll give you the pitching comp for that kind of All Star. Remember this game very well too. Look up Jack Armstrong. Look yeah, up his career. He started. he started the All Star game. In it that was in year. Cincinnati, wasn't it that year? It was in Wrigley. It was in Wrigley. Okay, so it wasn't. By the way, you know Jack Armstrong from Ryder University. Yeah, there's I did not very know that. few like like there's very few players that is that's a New Jersey school. Yep. And now my lawn's being mowed. But like uh, Nick Marjevicius, Vicious, I don't know how to pronounce his name. The lefty for the Padres now in Nick Seattle. Mar- Nick Margevicius, I thought it was Margavicus. 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 That's what it says here. It just got it. Anyway, you're right, Jack Armstrong. Jack uh, Armstrong was uh, 11 and three with a 2.28 ERA before the All Star break that year, and no other half year he ever had was anywhere close to that. Hey, good for them. They made All Stars, and sometimes, and because of the ridiculous rule that every team needs to be represented, I say ridiculous. But growing up, it was cool to me. It really was. It mattered to me growing up, but. Like there were some ridiculous all stars for the Phillies when I was growing up. That I, I mean, like Wayne. Tw- I was well before. I'm looking at Wayne Twitchell made an all star team. Shane Rawley made an all star team when I was growing up. Um, Kevin Gross. I, I, come, on, what are you thinking? Yeah, the Phillies needed to have somebody basically, and and uh, so I, you know, I like the all star game, but you do. Nishek was a Phillies all star recently. I don't know. I it, it's kind of served its purpose. I don't think they need to have one this year. I don't. I, mean, I was growing up. Paul Bird made an All Star team. Yeah. Paul Bird. I'm not. I'll be honest. I'm not a fan of the All Star game. I don't like. The, I mean, some of the matchups are fun. John Crock against Randy Johnson. Yeah, that's like the only one. Tyler Green in 1995 was a Phillies All Star. He finished with a 5.31 ERA. Tyler Green. I never would have guessed that. All right, now we're just wasting time. Um, any more questions here? <laughs> well, we. I can always tell. Like. All right, now it's time wasting. You know, like there's nothing else yeah. to talk about. You know what we didn't do? We didn't comp anybody for the natural. We did that for Major League. 
Okay, so it's Roy Hobbs, and that's it, right? Um, yeah, I don't think there really was a Roy Hobbs. There was one that that did strike me thinking about this movie, younger but more recent, was Josh Hamilton. Well, Josh Hamilton did a lot of things. I mean, well, on and off. But I, I think if you want, if you want to comp. But he was the number one pick overall in the draft. He took eight years to reach the majors. He did get to the World Series. And if things break just ever so slightly differently, he he gets the big hit that wins the World Series. How did they not win that World Series, by the way? I but know. 10, 11? Like, I, I don't know how they – I was, was watching – what? It was 11. Pretty it was sure. 11. Yeah, yeah. They didn't make it uh, – they only made it in 10. They lost to the Giants. Mm-hmm. 11 was the year against the Cardinals. Just unbelievable! How did David Freeze stole that World Series from them? I guess Hamilton, but I know too much. So they had I, two chances. They had two chances to lock it down. That's the incredible part. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, a, an old left-handed slugger who started his career late, hit for power, bled through his jersey, hit, 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 hit the lights. Yeah, was fifty years old when he played. I, there's nobody. I, there's no good comp. I, I see your point on Hamilton, but Hamilton did a lot of things, and I just don't think that's. I don't know. I know it's not the perfect comp. I'm just saying in terms of no left-handed hitter, outfielder. I guess the absolute phenom early on career baseball career gets tremendously sidetracked. All right, back reaches greatness. Almost, you know, and, he, and he's that close to almost having the World Series championship. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, solid point, solid point. All right, we're done for today. Thank you so much for listening to our little show. It is Thursday, May 7th. I think we'll have a show on Monday next week, and then next Thursday, back to June, Um, but in May. What movie next, Kyle? I don't know. What movie do you guys want to talk about? What would pique your interest? I I can throw a few names out there, and we'll see what sticks with the movie people, but do you guys have any suggestions? Well, I, I, what I don't want is to not discuss my favorite baseball movies and then baseball comes back and we're discussing baseball. So I want to get them out of the way fair, fair. as we go on. Like, I, So, I mean, I think my favorite one's Bad News Bears. That's a solid choice, Kyle. I just I, – I love Burn that down. movie. Because we've already done the ones I liked best. We got to get Eric's in here. We got to get June's in here too. What is his? Well, June had both these in his top five, so I think we're doing okay with touching. He has he has sugar in his top five, and I have to admit I haven't seen that one. Um, have you? No, but I now want to, knowing he has it in his top five. Yeah, let me know how to do that, and then. Uh, but like, and whenever Bad News Bears, either of them is on, I watch. Well, not I don't watch the second one in the seventies. Um, so let's differentiate that. But the original Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau is a classic. Um, so at some point I'd like to discuss that eight, um, eight men out as I love the movie, but it bothers me that it's not all true, mm-hmm. but I do love the movie. I, 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 whenever it's on, I watch it and I've read the book several times. And now I know from, from saber.org that half the book wasn't even accurate, which like, is anything in this world? The truth is yeah. anything honest anymore. And I don't want to get into some other stuff and get me fired, but like, there's no truth anymore. Like, Either this happened or it didn't. Okay. I understand movies taking poetic license here to make the movie more interesting, but a book? Tell the truth. 
All right, that's my soapbox for today. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, by the way, uh, please remember to call your mamas on Sunday. Sunday is Mother's Day. Uh, we know it's a difficult time in our and many countries, but hopefully mom is healthy and doing okay. So even if you cannot give her an actual hug, make sure to give her a virtual one, call her, smile on her special day, whatever it takes. And um, I will give anyway. you the, the dual note here because I also to say happy birthday to my own mother who probably will not listen to the show, but why not anyway? So don't forget Mother's Day. Mother is extremely important. Yeah, happy birthday to Mother of Stat. Have we ever called, referred to her on the show before? <laughs> Mom of Stat? Mom of Stat? <laughs> Mama Stat? I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, we're done for today. Thank you so much. Thanks to June Lee and Kyle Sapi and Tristan H. Cockcroft. The S H stands for happy. I am Eric. Have an awesome weekend.